Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb the new sea Welcome back to episode 14 of the Art and Science of Running podcast. We're here with a guest we've wanted to have on since the very beginning, um, yeah. Alex Hutchinson. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know Alex or, or just know him um, through some of the things that you've read, Alex uh, certainly fits um, our theme of the art and science of running. Um, he is a, a Cambridge trained physicist, um, but also a uh, professional journalist. And in my opinion, he's one of the few people <laughs> in the world capable of, of taking high level studies and somehow making them um, palatable and compre both, yeah, comprehensible for, for the layperson. <laughs> so thank you for uh, honing that gift and, and sharing that gift with, with the world, Alex. Well, I appreciate the kind words. And yeah, that's definitely what, I, what I'm setting out to do because it's, I think, all of us as, as runners are always trying to understand information, which is not always clear or easy to, under, to, to access. So yeah, it's, it's been a fun kind of job. Yeah. Um, so Alex has a column in Outside Magazine where you have likely seen his work um, under the Sweat Science column. Um, it's also on Twitter where you can find a lot of, um, interesting research that he shares, um, and commentary. It's also published two books entitled Endure, and then, um, another book entitled, which comes first cardio or weights with another long subtitle. <laughs> but I think that that touches, um, on, on the breadth, um, of your, of your research to a certain extent in those two books. But in addition to being a scholar and a, a writer, um, Alex is an accomplished runner, um, has um, been a two-time finalist in the 1500 meters at the Canadian Olympic trials and represented Canada internationally in track, cross-country road racing, and mountain running competitions. So um, you're an expert yeah. in, in many <laughs> uh, respects, and we really appreciate you being here today to share your expertise with us. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I will say, I, I won't call myself a running expert, I'm a, but I'm a, part a serious participant. And that's, that's kind of the, the best way to get expertise in some ways. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the things like straight off the bat, um, I'm really intrigued because I have a physics background as well and, um, and studied in the UK. And uh, I'm intrigued. So, um, so you study physics. Did you, at that point, did you have a plan of a career that you wanted to go into after that? Was there, did you want to become a physicist full time? Yeah, you know, it's it's so I made a big switch from in career from from physics to journalism, and it's sometimes it's hard in hindsight to remember exactly what I was thinking at the time because it all you know the path all makes sense now, 
in retrospect, but really I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, even coming out of high school, I, I wasn't quite sure. And, and physics in some sense was attractive because it was really hard. And one of the pieces of advice I got from some random older person who I asked in high school when I, what I should do, they said, well, if you don't know what you want to do, do something hard, it'll train your mind. And, and it, you know, it, the, the problem solving skills will be transferable to other domains. Uh, you know, it, it's, if you're, if you show you can do something hard and challenge yourself, it's easier to move to something else than it is to, to study basket weaving for four years and then decide you want to be a physicist. Um, so I, so I took that advice and, you know, physics was fun and intellectually challenging. Uh, after four years, I was like, uh Oh, I still don't know what I want to do. Um, and, and I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to go do grad school in England. So I did that for three plus years. And after that, I was like, uh Oh, I still don't know what I want to do. So I did a postdoc for a few years. And at this point, you know, obviously I wasn't just sort of drifting along. I was thinking, okay, an academic career in physics could, could be interesting, but the, the, the real spark, the real passion never ignited. One of the sort of memories that I have is, is of like, as a postdoc spending, you know, whatever, 14 hours in the lab, going home, you know, sleeping, running, coming back to the lab. And, and one of my coworkers saying, Hey, did you see that article in, in physics today about such and such an experiment? And just thinking, holy crap, we were both in the lab for 14 hours and he went home and read more about physics. He, he loves this. Whereas for me, it's just kind of a, a challenge. Um, and so that was kind of one of those awakening moments of like, I got to find something that, that where like I can do it 14 hours and then run home and, and want to read more about it. And journalism itself wasn't necessarily my passion, but I thought, what am I passionate about? Well, I'm passionate about running and passionate, and I was passionate about, you know, things like music and travel. And I thought, well, maybe journalism will be a, uh, uh, an opportunity to explore some of those, some of those, um, things that I, that, that, I, that I'm passionate about for their own sake, not just because they're hard. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm all right in saying kind of in that surrounded by people who are super psyched about physics, you kind of felt like maybe that that wasn't your, um, that wasn't your calling and, and, and those, and you're sort of different from the, from those people around you. Did you feel like with running that that was your community, like from, from day one, did that feel like, yeah, this is, this is my group. This is what I, what I meant to do kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, most of to this day, most of my, not, I, I, I'm not, I don't discriminate against non-runners, but to this day, most of my friends are runners. Um, my wife's a, a serious runner, and and just uh, you know, in high school, my friends were the people who ran, and in university, my friends were the people who ran. Um, I never really thought it was a feasible career. So I, I, you know, if you'd asked me at age 20, like, do you want to spend your time working in the running world? I would have said, well, there's only like six people who work in the running world. So that, that's not, that's not a useful thing to think about. I didn't, I didn't even consider it. And even when I became a journalist, I, I wasn't thinking, cause I'm going to become a, a, a running journalist because, because I thought, don't be ridiculous, Alex. Like I'm, don't, don't set your sights on something that's just not going to happen. So I was very much a generalist initially as a journalist and trying to sneak in opportunities now and then to write about the stuff that I was really passionate about and that I really had, you know, not just a professional knowledge of, but a, a passionate hobby knowledge of. And so it, I was thrilled the first time I got an opportunity to write for Runner's World. Um, and then I got another opportunity and then I got more opportunities and, you know, gradually it, it just sort of snowballed and, and it was, I, I had a, you know, like not to sort of meander and ramble on about this for too long, but my, my first job as a journalist was as a general assignment reporter with a newspaper called the Ottawa Citizen. And, 
I, you know, I had about I had 16 months there during which I wrote I know, something like 300 stories on just about everything, and it was great training in you know writing fast and and you know learning the craft of being a journalist. But towards the end of that time, I, I wrote a long feature on the Ottawa. Ottawa had a marathon every year, and every year, you know, a couple dozen Kenyans would come and and sweep the top spots. And I so I pitched a story saying, "How about I try and figure out, you know, go in advance, meet one of the Kenyans who is going to come to this race, hang out with him for a few days, and try and understand what it's like to be like a third tier Kenyan on the small." road racing scene in North America, trying to earn a hundred bucks here and 200 bucks there. And so I wrote this long feature about the, you know, the road running world. This is, you know, 15 years ago. And it was the best piece I, I'd written by far. And one of my colleagues came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Alex, it's obvious how much you care about running, love running and know about running. And that comes through in your writing. So just remember that, not necessarily that you have to write about running, but remember that when, you, when you're writing about things you love, you you write better, so I kept that in mind, and that sort of motivated me then to to uh, to to follow that path uh, because not just because I found it interesting, because but because that's how I think I ended up doing my best work is to write about things that I really cared about. And did you have like coming into journalism, journalism, and essentially kind of sidestepping in your career path? Was there a resistance there? Did you ever? Did you feel that need to prove yourself early on, like, uh, or was it just kind of an immediate sort of opportunity and, and uh, an acceptance that it was okay? Like, um, uh, I'm wondering whether uh, how easy it was to, to make that uh, switch across. And um, I'm, I'm guessing there are people maybe you'd worked with who who had a complete journalism background and obviously more experience or more journalism education. I mean, uh, was that ever a limitation for you, or did, was it relatively straightforward? Yeah, I mean. So I, I, the way I switched. So initially, when I sort of got the idea that it might be nice to do journalism, I, I, I you know, I applied for some internships and sent out a few pitches and didn't really get much traction. And ultimately, I decided that there was a, a branding issue that that I just looked like some sort of late twenties uh, career crisis, looking for something more interesting guy, not someone who was serious about journalism. And and so uh, that's why I ended up doing a one year master's degree in journalism. And that was, uh, as you know, learning the craft, yes, but also um, just sort of showing everyone else, look, I'm serious about learning the craft. I'm, this is what I'm planning to do. This is not just me sort of saying, oh, my, my physics experiment didn't work. I want to do something else. Um, and so from that point, you know, when I was an, an intern at the Ottawa Citizen, I was 30 years old. And so that, and and so some of the other interns were were you know twenty two, just fresh out of journalism school and things like that. So, um, it required some humility on my part and some some willingness to to uh, to be the at, at the the bottom of the totem pole, uh, and write a bunch of stories about car accidents and dog fashion shows and and uh, you know petty crime. That that was not my my dream, but I was I I. What the, one of the key decisions that for me in, in making the career change was that I didn't necessarily know that the day-to-day life of being a journalist would be any more fun or interesting or better than be, the day-to-day life of being a physicist, but I could I could see the the process the, that that I'd be working towards something that I felt worth, was worthwhile that maybe someday I could be you know someone who had a column on running and wrote about something that I really cared about 
Whereas the end goal of doing physics was to be able to do more physics. <laughs> so, so, so I was willing to, to be humble and, and start at the bottom and spend years uh, just sort of gradually uh, inching my way up, even though I was in my 30s, um, it, it, in a way that would have been you know, harder would have been harder if I'd already been married at that point, or if I had kids, like I was lucky that I was, uh, you know, lucky quote unquote, that, that I was unattached and no one was depending on me. So I could, I could live in a, a crappy basement apartment with squirrels, uh, breaking in the door, front door and stuff like that. But, uh, anyway, to, to, to actually answer your question, uh, no one, no one pushed back. And I think journalism is, is a career that has a number of, um, career switchers and, and values, diverse experience. Um, so that, that was good for me, but it definitely, it, it wasn't like a, an, a, a you know, an, a one, an instant success or, or instant easy path. It was, and it had, it required a tolerance for not knowing how things were going to turn out. And, and you were still, um, training and competing at least through part of this transition, correct? Well, uh, yes, yes. And no, basically, uh, one another, th- you know, another thing that helped my transition. So I was a physicist until 2004, and uh, right around the time I was deciding whether or not to accept a place in journalism school, um, I, I, at the time I was also in the best shape of my life, uh, and I, I got a stress fracture in my sacrum uh, about three months before the 2004 Olympic trials, which essentially ended my, you know, my my serious track career. I was 28 at the time, and. I, I came out of the pool two weeks before the trials and I ran the trials just to sort of get some closure, but I moved on. From, so I went to journalism school and I moved on from track and I was just running a little bit for fun. And what ended up happening is a couple of years later, when I moved back to Toronto, which is where I'm from and had, had uh, fr- you know, a lot of runner friends there, I started going out to workouts with my old friends just to, as a social thing and eventually ended up getting in reasonable shape and actually qualifying for another world cross country championships and then subsequently making some mountain running teams. So I was, I was fit, but like I was doing as much training physically as I've ever done. Um, you know, as much mileage and and stuff like that. But my, the, the mental ranking of where my emotional energy was, was at that point was journalism first uh, running second, or, you know, maybe I should put relationship second and running third or whatever, um, <laughs> depending on who's listening to this. Um, whereas for the entirety of my physics career, number one ranking for emotional energy and, and scheduling was running. Yeah. And, you know, there's like, there, there are some rocks in your day and mm-hmm. running was always the number one rock. It didn't, didn't matter if I had a wedding to go to or a, an important experiment, the running came first and everything else fit around that. And so in that sort of second chapter of my running career in my early 30s, I was running, but it was uh, it was fitting around my journalism. And, I, and I, I, th- this is like an interesting topic because I've actually always sort of wondered why I didn't run faster when I was like 30, 31, or you know, let's say 31 or 32, because I was doing the same work as I just didn't care as much as I, as I did before. And for some, and I could not race, like my, my, my workout to race conversion was different because I just didn't care some, and I don't know, I don't know how to quantify that or explain it, but it's always been interesting to me that somehow that manifested itself in my results. I think there's there's something really interesting. I think a lot of people can relate to there as well, because it seems maybe I'm wrong. I'm not too sure, but, um, I had a previous career for 14 years, um, representing Great Britain in, uh, competition climbing. 
And um, at some time, I don't know what it was, but something switched in my head <laughs> and, so, and priorities changed. And I found myself at a World, World Cup competition, sort of like not just not having that, that edge anymore, that competitive edge anymore. And, um, and, then, and then something goes wrong and, you, and instead of fighting back against it, you just sort of let it wash over you <laughs> instead. And um, I wonder what is, I guess everybody at some point who's embarked, in, embarked on um, competitive sport gets to some point, some kind of watershed, I guess, emotionally inside themselves where, um, where they, sort of, they sort of have a knowing acknowledgement of like, it's not the same anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, I guess at the time it was very mystifying to me because I was like, what is the variable that I could measure in the lab that has changed? Like mm. I, my VO2 max should be responding to this mileage and these workouts and I'm, I, I enjoy, enjoy the workouts. So I was still, you know, pushing hard and doing good workouts. And so I didn't, I couldn't figure out like what is different? Why is my fitness different? Now, it, you know, more recently, like I just spent all this time writing a book that's all about the sort of mind versus body and, and ha- the role of the mind in determining limits. So maybe it's not, maybe I should say it's not so surprising and that the answers are all in my book, which is not quite true, <laughs> but, but it's, uh, at the time I found it really puzzling and, and not puzzling in a way that's not like it didn't make me angry or anything. It was just like one of those things where you're stepping outside and saying, this is kind of interesting. Cause I, you know, I, I know that if I was doing this this kind of workout and these this kind of mileage a few years ago, I'd be running X time for 10K. And now I just seem to always end up running a minute slower than I, than I would have expected. And it's not like, you know, I wasn't like 100 years old. I was, you know, 30, 31. Uh, so it was, yeah, it's, I, I, I guess everyone, I'm sure everyone goes through this at different stages and in different ways. But it was it was really interesting that the the mapping from what I was felt I was physically capable of on what I actually could do in a competition had, had changed in, in changed in at the same time that my ranking of importance changed. Well, when you were here in Canmore and speaking about your book, um, you signed mine with the note, it's all in your head. So I think that's pretty much what it is, is that uh, it, it's all in your head. But no, no I, I think it's... Uh, it, it knew you pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it is all in your head. And of course, it's all in your body too. So it, it all yeah. depends on the, the the moment, right? No, the, the hard part is I'm... I'm in in the presence of legends um you guys represented your respective countries and i never even qualified for the state track meet in high school so you know i've um i think qualifying in, in the u.s is pretty tough <laughs> <laughs> in, in oregon of all places <laughs> yeah um i was actually rereading your book last night look at making sure that i had some notes and and you uh, you quoted ian dobson and um man i looked up to that guy but i i also looked at his back a lot. <laughs> um, he was rather dominant um, back in the day, but um, still a good guy. Anyway, um, let's let's talk about your book if you if you don't mind. Um, the one of my favorite pieces of the book is um, I do like the science, but um, and it you know you talk about um, running uh, specifically, but you you also talk about some other. Um, endurance feats um that don't involve running um but uh and i know you've shared this before but do you mind sharing your own personal experience as far as the autobiographical piece um about um your race the indoor race um where you made the big breakthrough um and i i for our uh our listeners that haven't 
heard that, I think it will um, intrigue them and perhaps make them want to, <laughs> to read your book. <laughs> to purchase the book. Yes. Well, in that case, I'll tell the story. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's, um, I ended up be opening the book with this anecdote because I was, I was having a sort of moment of crisis as I was finally sitting down to write the book after all these years of research. And, uh, I, I was, I was suddenly worried, like, why, why will anybody else care about this? Why all, all this research about, you know, what are the limits of endurance? How can I make people care? And, and I, and it, that made me think about like, well, why do I care? Why do I find it interesting? And I ended up sort of concluding that or, or tracing it back to this one race I had when I was in third year of college and, um, basically, you know, okay, I'll try and keep this story somewhat concise. Uh, it, it's a story about me trying to break four minutes for 15, for the 1500 meters, which is, you know, like a 417 mile or something, something there, thereabouts. And I had run 402 in my second year of running in high school. And so I had absolutely assumed that it would be straightforward to break four minutes. You know, when you're, when you're in high school, you get faster every year, more, more or less, as long as you don't do something, you know, as long as nothing seriously goes wrong, you, you get faster just automatically. So I ran 402 and, and assumed that I would break four the next year, but I didn't. Um, and so I assumed I would break four the next year, but again, I didn't. And so I assumed I would break four the next year. And again, I didn't. And so for it, 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 it by the time of this race happened, it, it had been four, four years of running 401 or 402 pretty much every year. Um, and so in terms of the concept of physical limits, I, I really had a sense that I was bumping up against what my body was capable of. I'd been training as an adult by this point for, for several years and kept running similar times. So I figured, yes, I should be capable of running a 359 and I want to do that before I die. But I didn't think there'd be a whole lot more like my, you know, my dreams were like, oh, imagine if I ran 356 someday or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when it finally it's happened, still one of my dreams, cause I never broke for, um, but <laughs> it, uh, I, I, uh, I had the signs up on my bedroom walls and locker and everything, but it just, just didn't uh, materialize. So I became an ultra runner. Instead. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are, there are all sorts of different barriers, but there is some magic about finding a barrier and breaking it. It, it um, so, so anyway, I, I, the, when it finally happened was the, 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 the smallest and most meaningless meet imaginable. It was, it was uh, this tiny little indoor meet, uh, with, you know, no competition that was going to be anywhere close to four minutes. Um, and I, I was, you know, I was trying to get my coach to let me not run it, but, it, but, you know, he insisted that I needed to get out there and do it. And I finally, I had this sort of moment of clarity when I'm like, okay, screw it. You know, I, I'm here. Uh, I'm not going to just sort of jog and try and win it in the slowest time possible. I'll, I'll go for it. And, it, you know, so indoor track, 200 meters, uh, gun went off. I took off, came through the first 200 meters and the timekeeper was like, you know, calling out the splits, called out 27 seconds, which, uh, for, for the non-track people listening 27 seconds is roughly way, 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 way too fast for a four minute, 1500. It's about five seconds faster over 200, which is a ton. Um, so, you know, I had absolute panic, well, maybe not panic, but, uh, you know, uh, remorse of thinking I really screwed up this race and it's going to hurt. And so I tried to chill out, came through the second lap and the, the split was 57 seconds. And again, this is pace for like a world class. I'm, you know, I'm on pace to qualify for the Olympics essentially, <laughs> uh, or, or even to win the Olympics and it's all, almost, um, and, and so I'm like, okay, this is terrible, but there's also this, the, 
aside from the external feedback, there's the internal feedback of, oh, I actually feel pretty, pretty good, pretty relaxed. And same thing happened going through the third lap, you know, fast split felt good. And at that point, um, I was just kind of like, whoa, I don't know what's happening here, but you know, I'm having an amazing day. Don't waste it. Just run, just go stop listening to the splits, partly because the splits were so, so far ahead of what I was used to that I had no concept of their meaning anymore. Like I had no idea how fast I was running because I'd memorized the splits for running four minutes, but I was so far ahead of them. So I, I, you know, I ran and I crossed the finish line in 352.4, which, you know, that's, it was a nine second personal best. My best at the time was 401 after four years of running like the same times over and over and over again. And the, the, the sort of the twist in the story is that <laughs> when I was celebrating afterwards with my, my teammates, one of them had taken my splits for me. Um, it was so obviously so that I could record them in my log and, you know, graph them in Lotus one, two, three, and all that sort of good analysis from the early nineties. And, uh, it, it, I was like, man, I've got, I really started out fast. Eh? And he's like, yeah, it wasn't that fast. It was like 30 or 31. Um, so it, it to cut, a long, to cut a long story slightly less long, it, it, the timekeeper was giving the wrong splits. And I, don't, I, st- I still don't know to this day, like, did he just miss the start or he was having trouble translating or something because this was in Quebec or um, one way or another, he, 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 to- he totally tricked me into thinking I was having an amazing day. And as a result, I just, I did. And, and so, and, and then, you know, the, just to continue the story is then like, it wasn't like that was a one-off. Then I, I never had trouble breaking four minutes again. And in my next 1500, uh, I ran 349 and in the one after that I ran 344 and like, and I will say after the book came out, you know, lots of people are like, Oh, come on. You know, obviously something was happening in your training, including my, my, my old uh, high school coach who who was like, uh, you know, I had this discussion with him, you know, I don't know, six months ago. And I was like, Ross, I'll, I'll give you my training logs. You you tell me. You tell me if there was a sign that I was about to get 17 seconds faster in three races. So, uh, and I, that reminds me, I have to get my training logs back from him because he still has them. But uh, I, I so I brought I brought my training logs over to him, and he he looked at them, and he a couple weeks later he came back. He's like, Yeah, you know, you you were having some good workouts that that suggested you you were gonna you know that, that you should be going sub four, but there was no hint you were gonna run 344 there. So it was like. I went from probably slightly underperforming my workouts to to dramatically overperforming my workouts, and a lot of factors there for sure. And I knew I was ready to to get under four, but uh, part of it was just that change in expectation, that change of uh, n- instead of thinking I need to run thirty two seconds a lap, thirty two, thirty two. Oh no, I ran thirty three. Oh, it's it's all over. I'm dying. I just kind of was able to because the splits were so nonsensical. I was able to just tune them out and go for it. Yeah. I, I love that story, um, and I love running indoors. I didn't get to do it very often, but I, I think I ran some of my best track races on on boards um, <laughs> indoors be, for that same reason because it was it was a different metric. Whether it was 150 or 200 meters, it was you just even for someone who can crunch the numbers in their head, it was just easier to just to just grind and just focus on going to that next turn and. I don't know why, but I, I loved running indoors as well. And I, I loved hearing and reading that story and definitely recommend the book to anyone that um, is looking to make a breakthrough because um, it's, it's a, it's a well-written, well-researched book, but um, it's also written by someone who has, who's hit those plateaus and, and has made the breakthroughs. So thank you. Kind of intriguing. Um, like, uh, do, do you think you had a lot of pressure? You put a lot of pressure on yourself in the previous races. Was, was there, was there any part of it that was just, 
in that that race where you ran quicker, you you kind of didn't put pressure on yourself and you you relaxed into it. Do you think that kind of mentally relaxing was part of it? Yeah, I, I I do think that's part of it. I think it's not a coincidence that it was a meaningless race. Um, I'd been doing it for four years, so it wasn't like for four years every race I was over pressuring myself. Some races I was relaxed, some races I was nervous, some races had competition, some didn't. Like I, I I ran low fours under a lot of different circumstances. I I ran it with fast starts. I ran it with slow starts. I mean, um, so so there there it's not it's not one thing I don't think, but I think it was. The fact, the fact that I didn't, this wasn't a day when I, I, you know, lay awake the night before thinking this could be the day that I break four. Instead, it was a day where I lay awake the night before thinking, how do I get out of this stupid race? What a waste of my time. I should be training, not running this stupid race. And even right up until uh, a few minutes before the race, my plan was, okay, there's nobody good in this race. I'm just going to jog and kick. And then basically what happened is right before my race, the women's 1500, one of my teammates who was similarly way ahead of the competition. She just went out. She had to get her qualifying standard for nationals, and she just went out and hammered it completely solo, uh, got her standard. And I, I, I was just shamed by this site because I'd been spending this all this time calculating, how do I get out of this race? I don't want to run the race. Okay, how am I going to run as easily as possible? And then I just saw her go out and, and run this race, and I was like, what is wrong with me? Like I spent all this time training for running, just run, you know, just, just go. So I think a lot of things helped to get me in that right mindset. And I will say, like mindset, you know, everyone knows it's important. Um, I, I I feel like I, I I struggled a lot with with pressure and with expectations and stuff. So I, th- I think you're right that it played a role. Yeah, it kind of takes me back um, re- really quickly. 2011, I was competing for Great Britain in a World Cup competition in uh, Italy uh, in climbing, and um, and I had a lot of pressure. I had like expectations. I had things written down, like I got to make like you know podiums and this kind of stuff. And um, in this competition in Italy, in this particular year, uh, in the warm-up room, um, and this is obviously a different sport now, but basically I fell off a piece of equipment that wasn't properly made and uh, smashed my back on a concrete floor. And uh, and this is five minutes before the uh, the guys are going to call you out. Uh, you know, so-and-so, you ready? You've got to be ready in five minutes because you're about to go out. And I'm like walking around with the back that's stiffening up and tightening up. <laughs> and I'm like, this, I'm going home. Like, I'm, I'm ruined. Like, this, this competition is not going to happen. This is a waste. I might just pack my bag right now, but I couldn't because there was not enough time and people were calling me out, right? And you go to like a kind of pre-competition area where you're like literally a few minutes away and then you walk out. And I thought, screw this. Like, I'm just going to fall, fall off really early and just go home. And uh, and I ended up just like climbing a bit. Back didn't hinder me. I went a bit higher, a bit higher, a bit more. And I was like in this kind of weird calm state. I mean, we can get into flow state and other things like uh, later in the conversation, but I was in this bizarre calm state where my breathing was quite low and I felt really efficient as if I wasn't really putting any effort into the movement. And then I, and I was like, I'm near the end, keep going. And the, the beeper hadn't gone. Uh, got to the top, ended up ranking like third place, so my, my best ranking in, in, uh, at a world level. And it was the day that I fell and hit the concrete 10 minutes before and was going to give up. And I spoke to people, I was lucky to work with a guy called Mike Gervais, who you might know, he's like a top psychologist, uh, performance psychologist in California. And I remember sat in, being sat in Mike's office and he was like, well, you have to decode that because something happened there <laughs> that, that flipped the switch. And um, I think I'm right. I mean, you, you know more than, than we do on this, but I think I'm right in saying like for performance, this idea of this psycho, let's call it psychobiological concept like psychology to biology 
it's still one of the frontiers, right, of um, of understanding and people trying to get to grips with how it works. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think w- w- there's widespread understanding at a sort of cliche level. Uh, like I wrote in, in Jacob's book, it's all in your head, whatever. Like we, we understand this, but operationalizing that, figuring out, well, then how do we, how do we take advantage of that for, you know, for a specific individual? How do we know what they need, whether this person needs to be, you know, motivated or relax or, or, you know, fired up or fire, eased down or whatever. I think that's where, and, and, you know, what, are, what are the factors? So I, I think there's, it, it, it's absolutely still, um, understanding that's important is, is well-established figuring out how to make it work is, is absolutely a, a sort of cutting edge area of where people are trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Well, and I think it does vary from person to person. There are certain things that excite certain people and almost, uh, prepare us to perform. And, and that same stimulus would totally wreck another person and create too too high expectations or vice versa. Uh, I, I, absolutely. And it's, it's sort of, that's sort of the, one of the, the parallel that it makes me thinking of is there's people always ask about, you know, the effects of music on running and there's people, there's been a lot of research on the effects of music on running. And there are some generalities, you know, faster music in, encourages people to push harder or whatever, but the problem is it's totally individual. So it's almost impossible to generalize, uh, you know, not just what, what are the, what's the beat of the music or is it major or minor, but it's like, did your girlfriend break up to you to this song in high school or what, you know, like everyone has emotional associations with the lyrics, with the music. And so it's totally individual. And so with the psychology too, I think, or, or not just the psychology, but the, the, the brain's influence on performance rich, writ larger. Um, it, it, there's never going to be, you know, five things that everyone should do. Um, and just as a, as a total non sequitur, let me just th- throw in that with this whole, uh, you know, I ran better when I couldn't make sense of the splits in this 1500 race. Just the one thing I I, I, I want to say that I think is um, something to, to ponder for people in the modern world. Is what, what, how does that relate to like uh, having a GPS watch all the time or a power meter or what, whatever the case may be? How, how many people are uh, letting external feedback dictate their their perception of their limits. And I think there's a lot of positive roles for things like GPS watches, but I think there's also a danger in getting in the same way that I was maybe held back by paying so much attention to the splits, uh, in, in, in my races, that this is a, actually a problem that's if anything worse now than it was 20 years ago, cause we have access to so much more data. Yeah. It, uh, me and Jacob are kind of nodding as you're, as you're talking because you know, firstly, we totally agree, but it also takes us back. We, we did an episode like earlier on, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago. Yeah. And um, so we have a joint friend, a guy called uh, Sanjay Sakdev. And um, uh, hi, Sanjay, if you're listening to this in the future. But um, <laughs> uh, he had an incredible story. He's from uh, from the local area here near Calgary. And he had this amazing story where he survived cancer uh, last year and went through chemo. And then he came back into running and really pushed hard. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to sort of help him a little bit. And um, he got back to um, to actually representing Canada in the this summer in the World 50K in Romania, and um, and it was really interesting because um, you know and, and and you can kind of chime in at any point, Alex. But you know we we think okay, well if it's a flat course and it was basically a flat course with loops, um, you know uh, energetically and physiologically we think okay 
best thing to do is is in your plan a is is run equal splits and um, and run as efficiently as you can um, without too many ups and downs of effort through the race uh well sanjay got out there got got kind of pumped up and adrenalized by you know everyone around him what's going on and 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 just went with the lead group and just kind of like smashed out some splits that he's never done before and and it was really interesting we were talking about um about this in a in a chat with him like afterwards and we were kind of discussing this idea of like uh how sometimes it can just be positive to just like not really have a plan and this was in the race of course a bit a world champs race but just go out, as he said, and just you know uh, give it the beans in the early part of the race, and see if you can hang on to the end, right? Um, and um, and when we were sort of talking about that and saying, because he actually got a PI, so he got a nine minute um, personal best, and and of course, like you know, logically, you sat down thinking this was a flat course, loops. He really should have run like equal splits through the race, you know, super controlled, and he didn't. And it's like, so there's something else going on. There's something. There's a there's a more important factor and force than than just pure uh, metabolics and physiology here. This is he went out and hang, hung on to guys that he that he was nowhere near as quick as on paper, and ended up just like hanging on, hanging on to this to this PR. And it kind of yeah, we we discussed it a bit, and it was really. Really interesting. And then you kind of threw in that you even had an experience similar as well. Yeah. Well, well I mean, it, it, the last chapter of my book is a lot about this and my thoughts about wishing that I had done exactly that more often in my sort of serious career. That And 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 you hear a lot of people make that comparison to um, how, how Kenyans race. And of course, I'm generalizing here. Every Kenyan race is differently. There's a lot, many different individual Kenyans, but uh, if if you were to you know make a generalization, you go to a big road race. Um, for the most part, the Kenyans, Kenyan runners who come over to North America and race in big road races, they all go with the lead pack. There, you know, there's there, are, you know, there are good Kenyans and there are great Kenyans, but at the at the three k mark, they're all, uh, you know, just going for it. And and the same is true if you go over to Kenya and watch, you know, some of the famous fart, fartlek workouts, uh, where two hundred guys are are all hammering away together. It's not like the fast guys do fast reps and the slow guys do slow reps. It's everyone starts, goes at the same pace. If they're doing two minutes on one minute off and some guys after five reps, they're cooked, they're done. And they're walking back to town. Some guys are making it to 10. Some guys are making it to 15. And if you make it to 20, probably the only people there are, are you know, are, are Olympic finalists. Um, but everyone is like, well, I want to run with, you know, I want to be an Olympic finalist or I want to be an Olympic athlete. So I'm going to run with the Olympic finalists because that's how they run. And uh, today I made five reps. Maybe next week I'll make seven reps. Maybe the week after I'll make nine reps. And, you know, I used to laugh at that, not laugh. I used to dismiss that approach because like, well, I'm, when I go to these road races, I'm watching my splits, I'm running evenly and I'm picking off a lot, you know, I'm passing a bunch of Kenyans who've gone out too fast in the last half of the road race and see, look, haha, I came 10th, even though I was only ranked 14th going into this race based on previous times. And it's like, oh yeah, but nine guys still beat me. And it may be a different nine each time, but no matter what, I'm never coming third because I'm never giving myself a chance to have that race where I just went out let it all hang out and, you know, tried to figure out how to try to discover if I was going to have a great day that day. It's really interesting because that's pretty much what we was. Yeah. That's kind of what, as we were talking with Sanjay, 
and he was kind of nodding to us and we kind of came to this conclusion yeah you kind of you go out with a plan and you pretty much know what you're going to get as long as nothing goes wrong with the plan you go out with like let's see what i can do no real plan and then you can either completely crash and burn but you could do something really special and spectacular mm-hmm. at the same time and, yeah. Now, yeah now if you're a if you're a hundred mile r- racer then you know, you're not doing one of those every week. And so some caution is warranted, but I mean, I look back, I I was mainly a middle distance guy. I was a 1500 meter runner Mm -hmm. and I was a 1500 meter runner for whatever, a decade or more. And when I look back, I never, ever once split the the first 800 meters of a race within like I, every race I ever ran was negative split. I, I picked it up. So the, the fastest I ever went through 800 meters in a race was something like two flat or 201, if I remember correctly, probably 201. But my 1500 best was 342, which is an 800 meter pace of 158. So I was always expecting to run 345. And then occasionally I would pick it up at the end and run you know faster, 342 or 343. And it's like, what would have happened if, and, and most, a lot of people I knew, even who were slower than me, they, they'd, they'd be going through at 158 or 157 or 156, uh, just seeing if they could have a big day. And if they didn't, if they blew up, I'd think, oh, those guys are idiots. Why didn't they run more conservatively? But then every once in a while, one of them would have a big day. And I'd be like, oh, I should try that. But somehow I never did. And, and so like in terms of, you know, what would I do differently? I, man, I would run, I would blow up sometimes. I would run some races where I just... It went out too fast and discovered where my limits were because sometimes that's the only way to, you know, the fact that I was always able to pick it up on the last lap tells me I was never really optimally getting to the the, the sort of full extent of my ability. Yeah, it, that's the beauty of uh, mid distance or or even some of the shorter distances. I, I'd say anything below a marathon um, for, for a lot of people. <laughs> I love that the shorter distances, like you know, less than a marathon. <laughs> No, I, I'm just trying to think of the people that might be listening to this. Uh, yeah, of course. Th- that you can do you can do a couple in a season kind of thing, or in your case, you probably ran multiple 15s or eights or three thousands or even five k's in a season um, as part of a build toward the the high stakes races. Uh, and so you can experiment with some of those lower stakes races. Um, um, but like you said, if it's, if you've only got one race on the calendar, <laughs> uh, which is your hundred miler, you might want to make sure that you're taking care of yourself that the first three quarters of the race. And then even the long push is still a marathon, um, toward the end. So, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so maybe you, 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 maybe you, two months before the race, you run a 10 K or a half marathon where you, you experiment with feeling what it likes to feel, feel yeah. what it feels like to go out hard. But yeah, you, yeah, it doesn't make sense to, well, although, Hey, yeah, you know, Jim Walmsley, <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, d- demonstrates that sometimes it can be okay to just go for it. Yeah, no, he does. And, um, that's something, hopefully we get a chance to, to get to that. <laughs> um, I, I did want to ask you about a, a recent article that you wrote, um, about philosophy and I guess part of the reason I want to do this is because um, I think it it just speaks to the breadth of, of of your writing and your research because you know you, you have a PhD in physics and yet you're writing about um, a French social theorist Michel Foucault. I don't know if that's how you say it in French, but um, that's how I was taught it in <laughs> in grad school uh, studying social sciences. Um, but uh, you specifically talk about um, using using some of his ideas around power and control um 
with coaching, but also, but kind of turning them on their head and, and actually kind of giving some of that power uh, back to the athlete. Um, that was my interpretation of <laughs> at least. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you speak to, to some of that? Um, or- sure. And I mean, I guess the, the first thing I should say is uh, honestly, th- this article almost started out as a, as, as kind of a joke in a, in a way. I was like, are you serious? There's a whole series of academic <laughs> articles on how to apply Michel Foucault's, you know, academic work to coaching endurance athletes. Like that is just hilarious. I, I'll, I'll write it just for the punchline. Um, uh, and then I read the, uh, and, and I tried, I'd come across some of these articles maybe four or five years ago. And I tried reading them, and, and honestly, I, I had trouble understanding. Like I had trouble understanding what the in a, in a concrete way what the what the the point was. I, you know, it was just it's it's not it's not necessarily easy reading. But what this this year there was an article that came out that was much more concrete, where uh, a, a, a PhD student named Tim uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Tim Canoval at the University of Alberta, who was a 1500 meter runner, like a, an accomplished runner. He he spent a season working with the university's cross country coach, saying, "Okay, what happens if we apply some of these ideas from Foucault to change your workouts?" And so they were looking at things like, basically, the, the, the I think the underlying idea that that these coaching theorists take from Foucault is like they look at some of his work on on like the prison system and 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 how that developed historically and how it creates this sort of you know tries to impose docility on the 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 prisoners makes them just sort of takes away their agency and and then he thinks about so how do they do that well they're 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 controlling time and space and organization and stuff and it's like well that sounds like a lot like a you know an interval session you know you've you've got a coach who's saying you're going to run around and around this little loop and you're going to do it in each lap in exactly this many seconds and i'm going to judge you based on how well you execute my plans and when i tell you to start you're going to start and when i tell you to stop you're going to be stuck you're going to stop and so you physiologically you may be uh you know enhancing lactate threshold and vo2 max but psychologically you're you're creating this sort of peon who just starts and stops on the coach's command and who who's who who has no sort of volition of his or her own and then you send them out into a race which is no longer a controlled environment and the coach isn't there with the whistle and the stopwatch Well, they may be there, but, but they can't really do anything. And all of a sudden you're responding to how other people react and you're pu- trying to push yourself to your limit. And so you're in this situation that requires initiative and bravery, but you've been trained to just be sort of this, this cog in the machine doing exactly what the coach says. So, um, so what one of the, some of the things they tried to do is, well, how do we change a workout so that the athlete has to, have the initiative and the control and the power and and the ability to figure out when he or she is is really pushing to the limits. And the ideas you come up with are actually not all that revolutionary. They're they're things that lots of coaches have experimented with over the years. Things like everyone take off your watches. You're going to run this interval and you're not going to know how fast it is. You're going to run and you're going to see you're going to try and run hard. That's that's the goal. Or you're going to do this interval session and you're going to be doing you know, 400 meter reps, and um, you you're not going to know when it, when to, when when the la- you don't know how many reps it is. You're just going to keep going until it's time to stop, or you're going to keep going till you decide to stop, till you decide that you have pushed to your limits. Or you've got a training group where uh, you know 
you, you run with the same people every time. There's a pecking order. You're used to, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm always the third guy in the group. Those two people are faster than me and those other people are slower than me. I better make sure I'm ahead of the slower people, but I better stay behind the faster people. You're kind of, uh, you know, self-sorting into this hierarchy. So the, then they had the coach say, okay, you're not going to start as a group. You know, Bob, you, you start your mile reps. Five seconds later, okay, Phil, you go now. Okay, three seconds later, okay, Charlie, you go now, whatever. So all of a sudden, the spatial hierarchy is disrupted, and the people who are usually leading are chasing, and the people who are usually chasing are leading, and, and no one can just sort of assume that they are where they should be based on other people. So there's it's just all these ways of destabilizing the the mental crutches we give ourselves to, the, oh, this is what I should be doing. I, sh- I only do this. Oh, I've done the right number of reps, therefore I stop. Instead, you're constantly having to ask yourself, how hard am I going? Can I keep going? Is this, the, is this am I at my limits or do, am, I, am I not pushing hard enough? Do I need to push harder? And you need to look within yourself in the same way that you do in a race. So I think that that idea ended up resonating far more than I expected. And what started out as a sort of like, ha ha, look, people are writing about Foucault and coaching. It was like, yeah, this has really has something interesting and useful to say about not just coaching, but about the way we train ourselves and the way we think about uh, limits. Yeah. I, I've particularly found it helpful because the way that I coach and the way that Malk does at least some of the coaching and the way that many people are coaching now is we coach remotely. Um, I, I used to only coach <laughs> face-to-face large groups, uh, where you, where you are the person with the stopwatch and, and you have the ability to kind of make changes on the fly. You can add a couple other intervals. <laughs> you can, you can cut the um, recovery short. You can make it longer. You can tell certain people that they're done after two and they need to just go cool down or they, they need to not do the workout that day. Uh, whereas now, you know, we, we prescribe sometimes weeks in advance what the, what the workouts will be and, and can modify them as much as possible up until the, the workout starts. But, but oftentimes the athlete has to be that autonomous <laughs> being that can, that can read this situation and, and determine one, have, have the foresight and the knowledge necessary to, to say, okay, what's the purpose of this workout? And if, if I make some adjustments, um, you mentioned a, a way of doing some workouts in the article about, you know, the goal is just to get around 20 minutes, I believe it around tempo effort. And so however you do that, whether that's two minute intervals or a 20 minute tempo run or whatever, it's somehow finding a way to get the stimulus that that individual needs. Um, but, but the challenge for us as coaches is, is somehow teaching that and also giving that uh, permission to the athlete. To, that's to really, that. Yeah. I was gonna say, that, that's interesting because I I hadn't really thought about the yeah the 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 real rise of of remote coaching, and in some ways that may force athletes to be more autonomous. Like it may be uh, almost a useful thing to that that they have to learn to rely on their own judgment. In other ways, it could be a disaster if they're the people who are just going to look at the the you know whatever it says on their computer screen and say, "All right, I'm supposed to do 16 by 400." It's too bad that there's a hurricane right now and I broke my leg. The, the plan says 16 by yeah. 400 and I'm going to do it. So, so it may be sort of almost diverges where for some people it's, it's, a, it's, it's a useful thing. For other people, it's, it's a real challenge to overcome. For me as an athlete, it would be liberating. And I, I feel like I, I, I wanted to become a coach when I was kind of given the reins of my own training and even some of my teammates training towards the end of my 
collegiate career, which was nothing to write home about. But um, when when I actually started taking control of my own training and then actually started training the local high school athletes, that's when I started seeing breakthroughs in my, in my own performance because I was beginning to understand what I was doing and why I was doing it. Um, but I th- there's a term that Foucault uh, it's, it's like the only one that I remember, uh, from the myriad articles that we had to read throughout school, but, um, he used the term panopticon, which has to do with the prison system and being able to see and control everything. Um, but it's, it, it it's kind of like the surveillance state essentially. And, and that's kind of what it's like as a remote coach. That's, that's, we have the ability to see so much <laughs> data, uh, beforehand and after the fact. Uh, and yet, like you said, some of the best coaches, you even mentioned one of your, um, former coaches, Matthew Centrowitz, like he would tell you to take your watches off and do the, do the workout by feel. And, and I feel like sometimes we need to be able to communicate that to our athletes. And yet at the same time, somehow get the feedback that's necessary, <laughs> but mostly what did you do and and how did it feel? <laughs> Not so much like what, what was your heart rate on every single interval and um, your cadence and, and all, all the rest uh, your, your Watts and the rest. So. Yeah. It's, it's, someone on Twitter responded to the article by saying, sometimes I think Strava is the panopticon. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that is a good way of thinking about it. And I, I didn't mean, even do that. So there we go. Yeah. That is a good observation. For sure. One thing that occurs to me is like, because I mean, in a sense, you, you do need to be able to know what's going on with your athlete remotely, but it's like, Maybe they can wear their GPS watch, but put some electrical tape over top of it or whatever. So you can then see subsequently what they're doing and they can see subsequently yeah. what they did, yeah. but, but it doesn't control them while they're doing it. And I mean, and that's sort of a cliche. People suggest that sometimes like, yeah, don't use it to m- monitor, but not or to describe your training, but not to prescribe your training. Cause it's, there's nothing worse than like you're, you're having a great workout you and you look down and it's like, Ooh, my pace is faster than it's supposed to be. I should slow down. It's like, yeah. no, if you're feeling good, like great. If, if, um well one of the i guess good things about some of the advancements in recent watch technology is that you can customize the face and and determine which metrics you actually are going to be able to see and so sometimes you can just put total time or you can i mean you can pre-program them to beep at you every (laughs) every second if you want um or you can or you can just make it so that you see total time or you see the heart rate but you can also make it so that there are like eight different things that you see at once um, on the face uh, eight different metrics so um that's another option i i remember hearing joe v he'll say that um they were doing a workout i think in alamosa colorado where he coached for a long time and he actually took one of his athletes watches with heart rate monitor off and threw it out the window um and this was probably like a thousand dollar watch at the, at the time and the kid was just kind of like well what'd you do that for and he's like we don't need the watch to tell you tell us what your lactate threshold is and the, the point is to run at your threshold not not for your watch to tell you if or when you're there and when to slow down it, like the goal is to we're doing this as a group and and we're gonna get there and um you know lovingly i think he bought him a new watch and stuff like that or probably, <laughs> but but it, but he made a point to him and to the rest of the team that, that i i'm the watch <laughs> i I'll, I'll take care of you you just run and 
Anyway, that was yeah I, I mean i will say we could have a a four-hour conversation about my my sort of experiences with with matt centeritz senior because it was a real culture clash for me in the sense that i was a super numbers oriented guy uh you know want, always wanting to know in advance what we were doing and what you know what exactly how this would fit in and and what the time goal times were and stuff and and centra was a real intuitive guy. And, you know, in hindsight, I can, I can say this now that like he was trying to teach me something really important and that I wish I had managed to, to, to accept better. And even at the time I, I knew it, but it was still hard. And so I would ask some of the other guys on the team, uh, like he coached at American university. I was a post-collegiate, but he, I would ask some, he had some guys running really, really well. And I was like, well, how do you handle this when he's like, he tells you what to do one thing one day and then changes it. And then, you know, yells at you in the next day. Cause he wanted you to do something different. And, and they'd say, oh, we just don't think about it. You, you know, like he, he's the coach. We, you know, he tells us what to do. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but we do it because it's, it works. He knows what he, you know, ultimately he knows what he's doing. So just do what he says and it, it, it ends up working out. And I'm like, well, I can't do that. I want to, I, I don't want to, I, I need to know what's happening. I, 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 so I had trouble like, like you, I like to know, I'd like to have some autonomy. I liked to know what I was, what I was doing and why. And so I couldn't, I, I had trouble giving away that sort of level of control and power. And as a result, it was hard for me to then benefit from some of the, the, the ways that he was trying to empower me because I didn't, I didn't put enough faith into him. And like, just, you know, in a, a story I remember, it's like, so this throwing away the watch thing was quite a regular thing. Like I'd be running hard intervals and I'd run past the start, you know, the start line where he was standing and he'd be like, take off your watch and throw it into the infield. And so I'd, I'd be running and tearing off my watch, throwing it into the infield, hoping that the soccer team wouldn't like crush it while they were running. And then I'd finish the workout and, and get it. And he'd be, he'd be like, you run, I time. But then sometimes I'd be, you know, if I was hurt or something or maybe not running the full workout, I'd be standing there and, you know, the group would take off for uh, a run and he'd look around and he's like, Oh shit, I missed the the start. And they'd, they'd come around, they'd be, you know, busting their, their butts trying to run a good time. And he'd just make up a time as they went by. He'd be, he'd be like, uh, 68. And I'd be like, so you meet some, you, you, sometimes I'm out there, you make me throw out my watch and then you're just making up a time. Like my head was, you know, pretty much exploding. So it, it it's tricky because, because to him, that wasn't a big deal. It's like the, who cares what the time was? And I understand, you know, like intellectually, I, I now sit here and say, well, he was right and we should do it that way. But at the time it was very hard for me to buy into that because I was so, and I still am, I guess. So sort of like I'm a, uh, my personality is such that I want to know what the, uh, uh, I want to be able to write down all the splits in my log because it looks so pretty. <laughs> That's a, it's a really, really interesting, I mean, we're, we're kind of visual, we're, we're building the visual picture in our heads as you're talking about, <laughs> about imagining this happening in our heads and, uh, and what we know about, uh, about Matt Century's style as well. But um it's it kind of uh, it kind of segues me on a little bit to um, uh, some to some time. I mean, you've obviously spent uh, time in Kenya and, and observed a lot of what of what is happening in uh, East Africa and um, and uh, in recent years, I've uh, spent about a bunch of time out there as well, uh, particularly with um, with Patrick Sang's group in uh, in Kaptagat, and um, and that's mostly because of um, because of the background that I have with. Uh, with wearable technologies and um, and uh, measuring gait, and then obviously um, there's a, a one or two people at Nike that obviously use that to develop shoes. Um, but um, yeah, kind of interesting from what I've observed, and hopefully maybe it jives with what you've observed is is again that kind of back to that kind of almost unflinching 
belief in the the training system and the coach and what's happening around and not questioning it and just and turning up joining the group and just 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 doing it with no conscious critique of what's going on um that really kind of blew me away like standing by the by the track in uh, in on the edge of Eldoret and just watching these sessions um uh you know Patrick had his stopwatch obviously around his neck and he's got his uh, two assistant coaches and he's like vaguely <laughs> vaguely keeping track of the splits as they go around but like <laughs> he was mostly as Patrick saying is he likes to just crack jokes really mostly rather than actually watch the training <laughs> um and um and you know like maybe using the same thing i mean obviously you know we'll get on to elliot in a second but um he's obviously the patriarch of the group everyone follows what elliot's doing if elliot changes his shoes all the other guys like, i want to change my shoes because he should change his shoes <laughs> and and um an incredible belief um i'm kind of almost kind of segueing us into sort of what we'd like to ask you a little bit about you know about sort of breaking to and, and these kind of projects but um but, uh, you know, what I saw out there, you know, a lot of, you know, I remember saying to Patrick, like, how many people are actually in the group officially? And he's like, oh, this guy here, this guy. And it's like 18 guys, but there's 30 running around the track. So you're like, what are the other guys doing then? And he's like, oh, you know, they just turn up. They just want to hang with us. You know, they want to get in the team. Maybe maybe I'll let them in the team next season. And um, I talked to some of these guys, one of them, Felix, and there's some other guys. And they're just like, yeah, if we, if we run with the group and we do what, Kipchoge, Kamura, what these guys do, what Patrick tells us to do, you know, one one day we'll be we'll be winning major marathons, and and they're getting up at like five thirty in the morning to just um, what looks like from the outside to sort of blindly follow this system, but then it worked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, and one, one thing I should clarify is I've I've never actually been to Kenya. I've only heard and read about it. So I I would I would love to be to be witnessing that. But f- from what I yeah. what I've heard from a lot of people is ex- exactly that that it's like and 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 particularly like the Kipchoge Patrick Sang relationship is so interesting because mm-hmm. Kipchoge is a you know obviously a very smart guy. It's it's not that he's like oh I wonder what I should do tomorrow. I better ask Patrick. He 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 knows how training works. He you know he but he but he has. He he's he's not interested in trying to reinvent the wheel. He's he has a coach, and the coach gives him an external perspective, and he has the uh, you know the the complete faith. And you know, any time I I've asked him, you know, even going back to the start of the Breaking Two project, you know, how are you going to change your training and, and stuff? And his answer is well, he gives different answers, but one of them is like Patrick Patrick saying, my, my coach will will plan out the training. I, I don't worry about it, that. In the same way, you ask him about the shoes, like. Nike will worry about the shoes. Uh, you know, my job is to run and to get myself ready to, to you know, to, to you know, mentally ready and physically ready. But he's he's not worried about the things that he's not worried about, and that's a it's it's a talent. Like it's it's uh, it's hard to quiet the mind like that. And and you know, I don't know if there's cultural differences or just personality differences or whatever, but there's certainly, I think, um, yeah. You you go to Kenya and and there's. 200 people showing up for the Tuesday fartlek or whatever, from what I understand. And they're not, well, I guess I'll, I'll tell this story, which is that when I moved back to Toronto about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, there were a bunch of post-collegiate runners around and we ended up, we had a really nice post-collegiate group um, of, of, of guys training pretty hard together. And we didn't really have a, 
particular coach, we, we, you know, we'd all come from different groups. And so we were sort of an autonomous, we all knew how to train ourselves. And so we were an autonomous group. So the only challenge was how do you get everyone on the same page? And we all followed a roughly similar program. And so initially it wasn't a problem, but we started to get these schisms about what seemed to me to be the most meaningless things. It's like, well, should we do, you know, five, five minute sections with two minutes rest or should we have two and a half minutes rest? You know, should it be four minute sections or five minute sections? And it's like, I, I don't care. Like if, if you think the session's too short, add an extra rep. If you think it's too slow, go faster. If you, you know, like if you think there's too much rest, go faster. Well, like it's just be tired. You know, obviously you can't do like two by three seconds. You have to be in and you shouldn't do two by 50 miles, but in yeah. that middle sweet spot, it just doesn't matter. And, yeah. but, and yet the group ended up splitting apart after a few years and, and a lot of people, and as a result, the, the, once the group was gone, then people sort of lost the motivation to train and, and a lot of people ended up quitting and the sort of the scene faded away. And it was like, yeah. where did it all go? Oh, it, it all, it all disappeared because some people thought we should be running our tempos at 325 per K. And some people thought we should be doing it 335 per K. Yeah. It's like, who- and you think, what do you think? Like, where's the perspective here, guys? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. We go and to that, Kenya and just show up Tuesday morning yeah. and do whatever work that everyone else is doing. That that's <laughs> yeah. where the world champions are coming from. Yeah, and that was that was incredible to watch. Was just like that that um that um because because well I, I can speak um specifically about Kipchoge's group, uh, the NN Kapsgat group. Uh, every workout is done on exactly the same day. So the Tuesday is the uh, the track session, track workout. Thursday's a long run. Saturday's the fart leg run, and it doesn't change. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's clockwork, absolute clockwork, and it's not rocket science. It's incredibly straightforward, um, and yeah, like as you're talking there, it's like I, I wonder about egos, you know. And obviously, that's you can spin off about the whole topic in, in psychology around the concept of ego and everything else. But um, yeah, one thing I noticed in Kenya is just because of the cultural background and history of the country ruled by Britain for a long time, blah blah blah. blah there isn't the concept of ego is entirely different in East Africa, especially in, in Kenya um where it was under british rule for a while uh, um and yeah it's there almost isn't yeah uh the, what we would what we see is as 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 people's sort of internal ego it's it's just not there in kenya it's just like it's bizarre so i, I kind of wanted to get get into because we wrote this down as a massive bullet point on the on the on the paper here um because you've got these insights into breaking too and um I was very much on the fringes of it from a distance and um, same with the Ineos 159, but you were kind of like, you were, you were plugged into it to some degree. And um, one of the things I remember uh, about watching it live, um, getting up at whatever time in the morning it was <laughs> and uh, watching it was, was for me, it was like Kipchoge's control, psychological control was unreal. Um, I remember watching the live feed and about 30 minutes from the end, he started to smile like to himself and you could see it on the camera and it was almost like he had that mental control and that ability to just entirely control his own mindset and um and almost get more energy at the end from just relaxing and making himself smile <laughs> as he was running i mean what was your uh firstly like what was your involvement and connection to it and then what was your take on on um on that first attempt as as you watched that first attempt yeah, so I was covering it for Runner's World. Uh, so they, uh, I guess, Nike invited Wired and Runner's World to kind of embed a journalist for the last sort of six months of the project. So Ed Caesar from Wired and 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 uh, me from Runner's World. Uh, 
and and we got a bunch of access. We you know we got to go to Nike headquarters when the athletes were there, um, and and talk to them and talk to a bunch of the scientists and coaches and go and watch some of the test events in Italy and then go to the event itself. So in some sense, we had really really good access. Um, look, the the truth is, all of our access was carefully managed uh, by by media relations people. And Nike is very good at that. You know, everyone who dealt with us was carefully media trained. Um, so I got some good insights, uh, but but at the same time, it was it was kind of like looking at this fascinating thing through sort of five layers of soundproof glass. You could sort of see what was going on, but you weren't always sure you understood exactly what what was happening. Um, but it was you know, and uh, I guess looking back, what is it now? Two 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 and a half years later. Um, at the time it was super controversial and, and, you know, it remains so because it was this sort of artificial, uh, project, not within the usual parameters of, of the world of, of, uh, you know, world records and things like that. And, and, and it, I, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about that for sure. But at the time, one thing I could tell was that I, th- I think whatever was happening higher up in the Nike hierarchy, the people who were working on the project, they were just super, super excited to try some, some of the science that, you know, you talk to anyone who's involved in running science, they all have 50 harebrained ideas about, imagine if we could try this or what would happen if we tested that. And this gave them a chance to try a whole bunch of things. And their brainstorming was just wild in terms of the things they were willing to consider that might, uh, you know, like stuff like, what happens if what what maybe moving your arms back and forth is just wasted motion? What happens if we basically put you in a straight jacket and make you run without moving your arms? Um, and in fact, they found it actually improved running economy, sort of comparable to the amount that the Vaporfly does. But it, but the, wow. everyone just hated it. Like experientially, it was intolerable. Um, but 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 energetically, it was it was it, 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 the one of the guys. I think it was Matt Nurse, who's who's one of their senior scientists. He was like, it, it, you basically you look like a T Rex. You have these t- your arms just sort of poking out of this straight jacket, and and you can run really efficiently. So anyway, all of which is to say, if there's myself racing, I I think that maybe I need to put myself in a straight jacket. So. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It, 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 it it's useful for the for running, and then it's useful for controlling your your craziness afterwards. But. Um, <laughs> I guess the point I was trying to make is, is there, it was cool. It was cool to see it happen. And to, despite the misgivings of many people, including me about what it was doing to the sport, it was just a really, really interesting sort of experiment in, in human limits. And then what made it, what made it succeed? Like, I think everyone would agree what made it succeed and, and what made it most interesting was Elliot Kipchoge himself. He just turned out, you know, and he, I think this is something that did probably did not show up in their sort of extensive battery of tests to figure out who to select. It just turned out that Kipchoge is a, a, not only an amazing runner, but a really sort of unique and interesting individual. And so watching him prepare for this challenge and then, as you said, go through this challenge and it was just kind of, you know, I think with each passing month, we sort of realized a little more how special Kipchoge was. And so during the race, like when you, you pointed out that moment where half an hour with with half an hour left, he starts smiling. And I, I remember that I, I remember watching that and having discussing with people, and I was insisting that he to other people that he was not smiling, that he was grimacing 
because actually when I'm in when I'm in sort of bad shape in a race, my grimace actually looks like a smile. People will be like, "What's so funny?" And I'm like, "No, I'm dying." Um, so I thought that's what was happening to Kipchoge. But afterwards, you know, he he explained very clearly. That, no, it was a, a deliberate tactic. Like he was a hundred percent in control. He was choosing to smile to to sort of tell himself that he was feeling good and enjoying this. This is where he chose to be, and this is how it's supposed to feel. And uh, yeah, I mean, and this this became kind of a thing because I wrote about it, and and you know about how Kipchoge believed that it would, you know, make a difference. And there was some, there's some research on facial expression and effort that it might make a difference. But then a few months later, someone published a study show, which seemed to show that if you smile, your running economy improves, you actually relax and you get physiologically better. Now that that's just one study. And, you know, we don't know, it, it would be, it would be nice to see that study replicated, but it's like, th- that was kind of the the moment where it's like, whoa, all this crazy stuff that Kipchoge is saying, my, <laughs> my, it's not just sort of him psyching himself up motivationally. He's tapping into maybe something that's that's uh, that 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 ha- that's m- that measurably helps your performance. And so after that, then I was like, okay, whatever Kipchoge says, I, I will, I will, I will never again just sort of laugh and dismiss when someone says something that sounds faintly mystical. I'll say, okay, well, maybe Kipchoge knows something. Yeah, I mean, he does have this incredible ability um, from the brief moments that I got to talk to him in Kenya. To, to appear extremely simple on the outside, but underneath is really intellectual, really plugged in and sees everything that's happening. It's quite incredible. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's the, you know, I, 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 I want to be careful in how I say this, but I think it's the classic Western English speaking mistake is, you know, and not just with Kipchoge, but with people around the world is like, if someone speaks quietly and slowly with English as their second language, we, we miss, you know, we mistake that for, uh, you know, oh, they're not that smart or whatever. And it's like, uh, no, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a heuristic that does not work just because, uh, you know, English is someone's second language. And so I, I think, uh, it took me a while and it's, it took everyone a while, but to, to realize that, you know, the, the level of chess Kipchoge was playing and how carefully he was thinking through these things that he, you know, and, and, and he's he's not just sort of an instinctive runner who happens to be magically gifted he's 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 very deliberate and very thoughtful about the way he approaches these challenges well thank you um we realize that your time is valuable (laughs) um and and you have other commitments um we're hopeful that we can get to one more topic (laughs) that we probably could have covered for the entire episode um and and the sad part about what you just said about Kipchoge is that many of his achievements have been uh, somewhat overshadowed by this discussion of of shoes. I don't know if that's sad or not, but the reality is that um, some of what he has achieved um, has uh, some people discount um, his greatness, um, not just as a person, but as a runner, because um, of the shoes that he has worn in his various attempts, uh, whether it be at the Olympics or in the Breaking Two or the Ineos. Um, but kind of like you said, um, about your experience when you had your big breakthrough, um, some of it has been the phenomenon of other people wearing the same shoes as him, but some of it I think has been just that collective momentum that he has created that he's out there breaking barriers like your teammate did right before your race. And so it's, it's challenged other people to step up and and really see what they can do for the marathon or (laughs) the 10 K on the roads, uh, uh, 15 K, you know, records are falling left and right. Um, 
much of that has been attributed to the shoes, but um, what can you tell us? <laughs> I know there's a ton, and and there was just a recent uh, New York Times article that came out with with updated research with with a ton more um, data, much of which came from Strava, actually. <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> uh, Panopticon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in the in the time that we have remaining, um, do you mind kind of summarizing some of that for us, or what your thoughts are about the evolution of footwear and and the current? Sure. It's, 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 um, it's tricky. It's, it's, I, I, I am conflicted about this and my views have, um, have sort of shifted back and forth and I, I can see reasonable arguments, uh, in, 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 you know, maybe not, I wouldn't say everyone is reasonable, but, 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 uh, there are reasonable, definitely reasonable views that are in, in conflict with each other. I mean, the the initial introduction of the Vaporfly, um, it's it, it's funny to look back at the responses when the Vaporfly was introduced, and most people just didn't believe that it that it would make a difference to performance. That it was they figured it was all Nike hype, and then to the extent that they did believe it, they were insistent that this was some, you know, some obviously illegal. Uh, development in shoe technology. You can't have carbon fiber plates in a shoe. That's a spring. It's it's a propulsive device or whatever. Um, oh, and you can't have this big, thick wedge of of foam. That's just not fair. It's like, and and intuitively, I actually so the, intuitively, I kind of ag- agreed that man, if a shoe makes you four percent more efficient, that's that's basically deciding the race. And, and it, and, and the worst thing about it was that in the 2016 Olympics, some athletes were given prototypes of the shoe and, and they won the, they swept the men's marathon top three spots and they won the women's marathon. Now those arguably might've been the best athletes in the race anyway, but they were from what we now know, they were getting an advantage, uh, that no one else even knew about. And so I didn't like the optics of that, the, the ethics of that the a, a shoe coming on the scene that not everyone has access to and um and people winning you know major races like the olympics as a result of it now when i tried to articulate to myself and and in articles like okay what's wrong with this well what is wrong with those shoes are carbon fiber plates really so bad they've been around for decades i mean adidas is the the the, the company that really pioneered that type of curved carbon fiber plate and they did it 20 years ago and from what I understand, Haley Gabriel Selassie wore a curved carbon fiber plate, a pro plate, in his shoe when he set the marathon world record in 2007. Nobody, nobody complained about that. And Adidas was the the leading. They'd had like four or five world marathon records in a row with their Boost foam, uh, the most resilient foam on the market, 15% more resilient than any other foam. So Nike came along with a foam that was a little bit better than the Boost, and all of a sudden, that's cheating. It's like uh what, what what specifically are we is cheating it's not it's nothing in the shoe that's cheating it's just the fact that the shoe is better and it seems sort of odd to just to that we're going to make a rule against having a shoe that actually does what the companies have always claimed their shoes do which is make you faster like no one complained when everyone was saying that their shoes were going to change your life so all, that's 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 my take circa 2017 it's like it's a little awkward. It's not great, but I'm not sure how you ban it. 
I don't like the way they introduced it in 2016, but other companies are going to catch up. The shoes are widely available. It's, it's, we're just going to go back to a sort of a new normal in the same way that speed skating got suddenly faster when the clap skate was introduced in the late nineties. And then it settled back into the new normal. Every, the same people are winning the races. They're just doing it a, a couple percent faster. What started to kind of, uh, push me a little farther towards one end of the spectrum is then, okay, well, the Vaporfly was done. Now they've got the next percent and it's supposed to be even better, reputedly about 5%, um, compared rather than 4%. And then Kipchoge's Ineos 159, which was amazing. And I loved it, but man, the, those shoes, it's like, they don't even look like running shoes anymore. And they're supposedly even better. And I have no idea what's going to happen in 2019, but if they become available like two days before the Olympics or two days before the US Olympic marathon trials or something, and a few select runners have them and no one else does, and they turn out to be significantly better, then they're so ugly that I have to imagine that they are significantly better than the current models. So it's like, whoa, we're having the same thing for the third straight year. So <clears throat> I've sort of come around to... I. I would like to see some sort of limitation. Doesn't necessarily, not necessarily something that bans the vapor flies, but something that just says, look, stack height limit of whatever, 31 millimeters, I don't know, 35. You can argue about what it is, but let's at least constrain the 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 um the the, the space available for for innovation. So anyway, that's that's a long rambling take to say that I think it's really complicated. I think that it's overly simplistic to say, well, it's obvious that the Vaporfly is a cheating shoe because it has magic engines inside it. It doesn't. Uh, similarly, I think it's disingenuous to say that, well, the point of, uh, you know, to, uh, shoes are always getting faster, the, deal with it. This is just the way it is. That's not cool if we go to the Olympics and, uh, you know, one third of the runners or one quarter of the runners or even one half of the runners have a shoe that makes them a minute or two minutes or three minutes faster than their world-class competitors. That's not what we're paying to watch. I mean, technology always play, pays, uh, not that we pay, but anyway, technology always pays, plays a role in sport for sure. But it, when when its role is, is, you know, in a sport like running, our expectation is that its role is not the sort of main difference maker, I think. What do you think? Just like re, um, rounding it out, um, what's your take on, on on things like world records? Uh, and I'm I'm thinking of you now as um, as a runner yourself and someone who's been passionate about running uh, most of your life. Like, um, does it make sense to you? World record goes, and then you're basically kind of saying, "Hey, like, you know, X number of years ago, this was the, this was the best, and uh, now that's been surpassed." Uh, but the person we know is not wearing the same technology like as, as, as a runner and someone passionate about running what's your thought on that yeah i'm, I'm not I, I i'm not too wound up about that i mean obviously I, i'm not saying that we shouldn't care at all about what technology how technology changes records but technology has changed records consistently over the past let's say century if, or, or or more when we when we talk about the sort of normal progression of running it's it's always been you know there are people who would you know peter snell just died he ran 144.3 on a grass track like, uh, you know, he, he would have been in contention, I would say at the Olympics, you know, next year if he was around, but tracks have changed. Technology is, you know, running is more immune than most sports to technological change, but it's definitely changed. Knowledge has changed. So I don't expect <clears throat> today's times to be directly comparable to 50 years ago times. And I don't necessarily expect them even, I'm, I'm not too worried as a result, if they're not comparable to times from 10 years ago. 
But if they're not comparable to times from October, then we're mm-hmm. then we're in a in a different place. Right. I agree. I was uh, <laughs> I, I was one of the four percent not wearing the four percent at CIM the other day, and uh, oh wow, <laughs> those pictures were amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was mind blowing. Like, um, and uh, and and yet at the same time, like for me, I both because of sponsorship obligations, but also because I I was trying to see what I could do. Uh, as closely to comparing apples to apples as possible. Like I, I wanted to see if I could PR. I haven't like done a build for a marathon in almost 10 years. So it was like, Hey, I want to see what I can actually do in the marathon. So I, I tried to choose a shoe similar to, to what I raced in 10 years ago. Um, rather than, Hey, I wonder if I could get three to four minutes <laughs> or more, uh, with the same kind of training or with a similar training block, but just by throwing on a different pair of shoes. Um, and yet at the same time in the race, it was, um, it was, it was mentally pretty hard to like when there were, I, I, I know we're all older, <laughs> but when there were kids like coming up next to me, it was like, dude, you shouldn't even be able to like run with me. And I, I don't, I know that sounds super arrogant, but they weren't, they, they l- didn't even look fit enough to be running the pace that I was like muscling my way to run. And they were just like effortlessly just passing me. And I caught a lot of them toward because they weren't fit enough to maintain that pace. But, but yeah, the shoes made them look um, and feel really fit for as long as they could sustain that. But I, I think a lot of them were debuting at the marathon and figuring out what that wall really is and that kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was an interesting. <laughs> well, it, it, it is interesting. And, and especially when you start, like, if you're competing to win the Olympics, then to me, it's like, well, you do what everyone else is doing. But I, I, so I've thought about this question in parallel for years with things like caffeine or even beet juice. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if people ask me what supplements I think work or what ergogenic aids work, I mean, caffeine works. Yeah. Um, personally, I don't drink coffee. I don't like it. So I, I've never taken caffeine before a race. Um, and so when people ask me, I'm like, well, d- d- just before you take it, here's, here's how you take it. Here's how much you take. But just take a pause and and and, and think a little carefully about w- what it is you're, you're out to, to prove to yourself. Because if you're, if like you, like your, your situation is a classic, if you're trying to see if you're faster than you were last year, then you know, you could also run, you know, a 20, 25.9 mile race and you'd be faster, but that wouldn't really mean anything. So yeah, taking caffeine, probably, like what's in, yeah. unless you're trying to beat some external standard, then yeah. w- what is, what is the point? And, and it, the, the same thing comes with the shoes, but I think it's very easy for me to say that in a place where I'm not trying to, uh, you know, necessarily PR in the way that I was tw- 20 years ago. I think if I knew then what I know now, I would have been taking caffeine before races. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I don't want to sort of pretend to have moral purity, but I think it really is interesting to, to sort of ask yourself, what, what am I trying to get out of this whole enterprise? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't fault those who were trying to hit a, a lot of people at CIM were, <laughs> that was their last hurrah trying to get into the Olympic trials for the U S um, or a Boston qualifier or whatever it may be. So I, I don't fault anyone for, for trying and i um i have been trying to find the best shoe that i could wear uh, with it with the sponsor uh, that i have but um it, it, at the same time i really respect how objective you are um because i i realize that it, it probably doesn't seem all that objective that i do have sponsorship obligations so when people ask me about the shoes i specifically say you know 
you try them out, get, get what works for you, but, <laughs> um, and, and don't necessarily wear what I wear, or what anyone else wears just because you see them on Instagram or, or you see an entire flood of them on Instagram um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or because Kipchoge is wearing them, just, you know, try them on, go to, go to, go to strides, uh, go to your local running store Absolutely. and, and try them on. So, yeah. Um, well, we want to thank you again for your time. Um, yeah. and definitely want to encourage our listeners. Uh, if you haven't, um, read, um, Alex's books, you should certainly look them up. Um, if you haven't read his articles, be sure to follow, um, look them up uh, at outside. Um, you obviously write for other, um, publications as well. Um, but, uh, listeners can subscribe to your newsletter at the bottom of, of each of the articles um, in outside as well under sweat science. That's right. It's um, got an underscore between the two. Is that, is that right? Sweat underscore science? Uh, not on Twitter. Not on Twitter. Oh, only okay. on Instagram because I took some boxing gym got there before me. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so endure mind, body and the curiously elastic limits of human performance is a must read or listen if you like audiobooks. Um, it also has a, a picture of Steve Prefontaine running it. It looks like Hayward field. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly a fan of it as an Oregon boy. Um, <laughs> nice. so, I, I, will, I will say if you get the audiobook, I'll, I'll also mention that the guy who read it was in a James Bond movie, Casino Royal. I think he was bus driver number four. So there's that too. <laughs> wow. All right. <laughs> Another reason to, to, to get it. So, um, Maybe we'll get this out before Christmas. So if people are looking for last minute Christmas gifts or uh, holiday gifts or, or looking for what to read or listen to to get you motivated in 2020, that's definitely something you should consider. So thank you again, Alex. Yeah. We appreciate Absolutely. your time and expertise. Thank you. Guys, this was a, a ton of fun uh, conversing. I'm sure we could have gone for another eight hours, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we won't do the ultra version of podcasting. <laughs> yeah. That'll be another episode. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you, Alex. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Art and Science of Running podcast. Malk and I would like to invite you to join us this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain Running Retreat from April 30th to May 3rd. That's four days with other runners from around the world running in a beautiful setting and discussing all things running. In addition to that, Malk will be performing gait assessments uh, throughout the weekend and will provide you some feedback about your gait. Certainly discuss training, strength training, injury prevention, nutrition, and anything else that uh, have questions about throughout the weekend as it relates to running. This will be based at a lodge in the Rocky Mountains. This is an opportunity to either bring some a partner or, or a training group out and, and enjoy the trails together, um, stay together, but it's also an opportunity to meet other people from around the world. This is only for adults. It is co-ed. Um, but it's, it's for runners of all ambitions and abilities, whether you're a beginner or you're an Olympian. Uh, if you've got an open mind and you want to run in a beautiful place with other like-minded people, this is for you. Uh, we welcome you. For listening to this podcast, we want to offer you 10% off. So if you use discount code ASR10, that's ASR10, you can um, get 10% off your registration of this retreat. It will fill up. We want to keep the numbers small so that we can give the attention to each participant um, that signs up. So we hope to see you this spring at the Peak Run Performance Rocky Mountain Running Retreat. I'll climb atop the highest mountain.
melting snow Where I'm going, I'm going for a walk. 